Well, it is awfully good to be here with you, and I'm so grateful that you have chosen to wake up this morning on a beautiful day and chosen to be with us here in the sanctuary or joining us through our virtual platforms. We are just grateful to have the opportunity to gather together and to give thanks to God and to praise and glorify God and, and to recognize today that Christ is the King. And that's an important day in the life of the church. It's the last Sunday of the Christian, the church year. So think about how all of this starts in Advent, which will, be, will start next Sunday. We will begin preparing room in our place, in our homes, in our hearts, in our minds for the coming of the Christ child, the birth of the Savior. And we'll make our way through a complete year some 52 weeks till we arrive today in Christ the King when we celebrate that newborn baby has grown up, has offered signs, words, and deeds of power, of grace, love, and truth. And we now declare and proclaim that that baby, that child, that word made flesh, that man is Christ the King, my King, your King, our King. And that's a simple thing to say, right? To say that Christ is the King. You can say that. Let's just, let's just declare it. Christ is the King. Christ is our King. It's just not always easy to fully understand what we're declaring, that Christ is our King. The all-encompassing authority of all that is, all that was, all that ever will be. The truth, the light, the Word made flesh, the Logos. We declare that all of that is captured in this one simple term and phrase, Christ the King. You know, this feast day, that's why we, are, uh, we adorn the church in white with white pyramids. It's a feast day of the church. It doesn't have that long of a history in church, in the manner of church history. The first uh, Christ the King Sunday was actually declared by the Pope in 1925. It's not that long ago. He declared that it would be at the end of October we would celebrate Christ the King. And then in 1970, as things go, we decided that we needed to move that date to the end of the church year. So it becomes the last Sunday of the year, the Sunday before the first Sunday of Advent. So now we have this wonderful day with all of its short history that looks back over a long history of the church trying to understand just who and what Christ is. What he's doing, what he's done, what he will go, he's going to do. Now, as I was kind of thinking about this, um, this sermon today, and this is, it's a simple thing, like I said, to say Christ the King, Christ is my King, Christ is our King. It's a whole different matter to begin to understand what that declares 
what, how do we, what are we defining? What do we mean when we say Christ is my king? Christ is our king. As it just so happens, I don't know if this was just happenstance or if it was a God thing. I, I really don't know. God does things in mysterious ways that it just baffles me, baffles us all. Well, a few weeks ago, I, I kind of dug up this old CD that I bought years ago. Years ago. Now, I don't, I don't know where the actual CD is anymore, but I know where Spotify is. And Spotify has every CD on it. So I went and I found this CD called Mermaid Avenue. Have you ever heard of Mermaid Avenue? Most people haven't. It's actually a, a, a CD that was put out by a group called Wilco and a British folk singer named Billy Bragg. Well, Jeff Tweedy of Wilco and Billy Bragg of England received a phone call from the family of Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie had unpublished lyrics, music he didn't lay down, didn't record. And so his family reaches, reached out to Jeff Tweedy and to Billy Bragg and said, we want to give you these lyrics and let you put music to them and record them. We think the world needs to hear more of Woody Guthrie. Now, I don't know how you feel about Woody Guthrie. I don't know how I really feel about Woody Guthrie. But he put together this incredible um, song called Christ the President. I want you to hear this and let it kind of sink in. Let's have Christ our president. Let's have him for our king. Cast your vote for the carpenter that you call the Nazarene. The only way we can ever beat these crooked politician men is to run the money changers out of the temple. Put the carpenter in. Oh, it's Jesus Christ our president, God above our king. With a job and a pension for young and old, we will make hallelujah ring. Every year we waste enough to feed the ones who starve. We build our civilization up and we shoot it down with wars. But, the carpent, but with the carpenter on the seat, way up in the capital town, the USA would be on the way, prosperity bound. Now, Woody Guthrie lays out these lyrics and says something is different about Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ were our president... No, if Jesus Christ were our king, things would be a little different with the king on the seat up in the capital town. And there's a lot of truth there. There's a whole lot of truth in those lyrics. Probably far more truth than Woody Guthrie ever imagined. Because we, we as a people, as humankind have been trying to walk this tightrope between what is religious and what is secular. But it's a knife's edge. And this knife edge will force us to fall on one side or the other. And we find that clearly drawn out in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John... 
that begins so eloquently with this prologue about the Word made flesh, the Logos. The reason, the logic, the breath of God is made flesh and comes to live among us, to be a light in a dark world, a light that will never be put out. And John goes on to tell us in different ways by showing different signs, words, and deeds of Christ that point to the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who will save the world, who will change the world. In chapter 18 of John, we find Jesus with Pilate. Jesus has been betrayed by one of his own. He's been handed over to the temple police. They have taken Jesus to the house of the high priest who has interrogated Jesus. He has been beaten. He has been mocked. He has been spat upon. He's been ridiculed and disrespected. He's been charged with trumped-up charges of being a blasphemer. And now they need a charge that Rome will support. So they've taken, the chief priests and the priests and the Jewish leaders have taken Jesus to, to Pilate. Now Pilate lives in, on the coast, Caesarea Maritima. But this is Passover season. In the Passover, Pilate makes his way to Jerusalem, the capital city, the capital town, to keep an eye on things. Because there will be thousands upon thousands upon thousands of celebrants coming in for Passover. Jews from all over Palestine, from all over, whoever can make this trip, they'll be there. The city will swell in numbers. And Pilate wants to be there with his forces to make sure that everything stays calm and stays peaceful. So the Jewish leaders take Jesus and they take him to where Pilate is, either in Herod's palace or to the Antonio Fortress, which is right adjacent to the temple. The Jewish leaders don't go in to the gate. They don't go into the, the residence of Pilate because that would make them ritually unclean for Passover. There wasn't enough time to cleanse themselves for Passover. So they send Jesus in while they remain outside. And in chapter 18, we have this incredible play that's being brought forth where Pilate is inside with Jesus to interrogate and comes outside to talk to the Jew Jewish leaders and he goes back and forth. And we can see Pilate navigating this tightrope, interrogating Jesus. Now we have to understand for Pilate that Pilate could care less about Jesus from Nazarene. He just doesn't care. In fact, he doesn't care too much about the Jewish people. 
He doesn't understand their laws or traditions, and he doesn't care about them. He doesn't really care about Jesus. In fact, as far as he is concerned, Jesus could be executed or set free. It makes no difference to him. He could go either way on this guy. And so far, he has heard nothing that would mean Jesus should be executed. So he's interrogating Jesus, and he's inside. We pick up with chapter 18, verse 33, and hear this in a way that we have this conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Then Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate responds with, what is truth? At which Jesus stands silent. This is a credible dialogue and interrogation. We find poor Pilate, if we want to say that, trying to navigate this tightrope between Rome and Jerusalem, between the praetorium and the temple, between the secular and the religious, between the truth and deceit, between a true king and his king, between the light and the darkness, between heaven and earth. You see, John has been laying out this whole scenario from the very beginning. John tells us that the light came into the world and will not be extinguished. John goes on to talk about how Jesus is the Son of God, who the Father gave, gives His Son, that all who believe in Him will have will life, a full life, eternal life. We also see Jesus, the Son of God, the King, enter the temple and throw the money changers out, upturning the tables. Because the world, as it stands, needs to be turned upside down. Because that's what the kingdom of Christ looks like. It looks different. It has to be different. 
In fact, Jesus says, if my kingdom were from this world, my followers, they would fight you to keep me from being handed over. We would have a war. We would have a rebellion, a revolution. But my kingdom is not from this world. My kingdom is not about violence and darkness. My kingdom is about peace and light, grace and love, as I have declared from all along. Jesus turned the water into wine at that wedding, the first miracle in the Gospel of John, showing that the kingdom of God is rich. The kingdom of God is about abundance. The kingdom of God is about transformation. In chapter 6 of John, we find Jesus feeding 5,000 with very little because the kingdom of Christ is about abundance. And here, before Pilate, he has to answer for all that he has done, for all that he has said, for all that he has shown, that he is the truth, the light, the life, the resurrection, the good shepherd, the king. All those who hear his voice recognize him, and he knows his own by name. Mary discovered that truth outside an empty tomb. We discovered that truth outside the empty tomb when the resurrected Christ calls Mary by name. And she knows exactly who it is. Because the Good Shepherd knows his followers and he calls them by name. And they recognize his voice. The good shepherd is the truth. The king is the truth. And the truth is transformative in this world. It turns things on its ear, turns up the world upside down. Because our king, my king, and your king is about grace and love. Our king is the truth. And no matter how we walk with Pilate, the question that we have to answer, that Pilate had to answer, that the world has to answer, is who is Jesus? Is Jesus my king? Is Jesus the light? Is Jesus the truth? Is Jesus the good shepherd? Is Jesus the source of love and grace? Is Jesus the savior of the world? Is Jesus my truth, my king, my savior? That's the question that Pilate so desperately wanted to avoid answering. And that's the question that we all have to answer. That's the knife edge we walk every day. 
every moment. Who is Jesus? Is he my king? Is he the king? The king of all. The all-encompassing authority in the world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.